Today we're wrapping up this series, and the big idea behind this series is that there's a connection between good questions and good decisions. That good questions really set us up for good decisions. Uh, hopefully you agree that if you'll get in the habit of asking these questions that we're talking about, answering them honestly, and acting on your answer to these five questions, you will make better decisions with fewer regrets and be more Christ-like. On top of just your life being better, the lives of those around you will be better too, because we're not the only people impacted by our decisions. We are not the only people impacted by our regrets, and we are not the only people impacted by our amount of Christ-likeness. I want to thank North Point Community Church for many of the ideas behind this series. Uh, so here's a sort of a quick series recap. Uh, question number one, am I being honest with myself? Am I being honest with myself really? Because the easiest person to deceive is the person in the mirror. And as long as you are lying to yourself, you will never be who God wants you to be, or you'll never be who you want to be. Uh, before making any decision, ask yourself this question. Am I being honest with myself about why I'm doing this? Why am I choosing this, uh, purchasing this, texting him or texting her? Question number two, what story do I want to tell? When the decision that you're in the process of making right now is nothing more than a story that you'll tell someday, what story do you want to tell? Because you write the story of your life one decision at a time. So be the person in the story who exercised self-control, not the person who lost control. And for those of us who follow Jesus, we believe that God is writing a bigger story that our story is a part of. And so what story do you want to tell? Question number three, is there a tension that deserves my attention? And this is sort of the conscience question. And the conscience is that part of our brain and our thinking that, that begins to feel tension around an option or a decision. That, that everyone else is nodding. It looks good on paper, but there's just something that doesn't feel right about it. And when that happens, pause and pay attention to that tension in your conscience, because that is likely God's way to get your attention to help you avoid regret, to make a better decision, or maybe to be more like Jesus. And then last week, we looked at question number four. What is the wise thing to do? And we expanded this question to sort of include, in light of my past experiences, in light of my current circumstances, in light of my future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing to do? That an option may be legal, acceptable, permissible, or, or not exactly immoral, but is it wise? Because a decision can be not wrong and not wise at the same time. And the thing is, unwise decisions are usually a gateway that can lead us to regret. That your greatest regret was likely preceded by a series of unwise decisions. And those preceding decisions might not have been wrong or illegal, but looking back, they were incredibly unwise. So in light of my past experiences, my current circumstances, and my future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing to do? And this brings us to our fifth and last question, which is about relationships. Uh, hopefully you can see how these questions can really be kind of clarifying, but they can also be terrifying. And the clarifying part is that in many instances, we know the answer to the question before we even finish asking the question, right? And this sort of clarifying and terrifying idea is connected to a question I heard a mentor asking a mentee, and maybe you've thought about this as well. The mentor asked the mentee, what do you hope I don't ask you about? And perhaps this fifth question is really the most clarifying of all, and maybe it's also the most terrifying of all. And sometimes clarity is what we need to sort of push past our resistance to making good, but sometimes difficult decisions. And to be clear, there will be resistance with this question. And this might be the question that you will be tempted to not answer honestly, because it will cost you the most. And while you might be tempted to sort of deceive yourself about the answer or sort of ignore the answer, what you refuse to know or acknowledge can hurt you. And in the case of this question, what you refuse to know or admit is going on is going to hurt the people around you. 
Because as we'll see, this is a relationship question. Now, when you envision your future, you probably don't envision yourself alone, right? There's always someone nearby or someone beside you. Uh, perhaps that someone is already beside you. Well, this question will help you keep them beside you. Uh, perhaps maybe you're looking for that someone still. Asking this question will help you become the person you need to so that could happen. And the power of this question actually sort of extends way beyond that. That this question, when asked, answered honestly, and acted on, has the potential to enhance the quality of every relationship you are already in. And this question has the potential to heal broken relationships. This question has the potential to restore what was lost. One disclaimer though, while the other questions don't necessarily come with a guaranteed return on your investment, an ROI, they likely will have a return on their investment. However, this last question definitely does not have a guaranteed return on investment. And here's what I mean by that. When you are honest with yourself, you will always come out ahead. When you decide to write a better story, you will have a story that you're proud to tell others. When you pay attention to the tension in your conscience, you will likely avoid the feeling of regret. And when you make the wise choice, it will help you in some way into the future. And you ask those four questions and you will benefit from it. Sometimes immediately, but almost always eventually. But this fifth and final question, it's different. There may be no tangible, measurable, or even noticeable return on your effort in asking this question. And while the first four questions may be demanding in the moment, our final question is demanding throughout each of our relationship moments. Because our final question isn't about making your life better, it's about making someone else's life better. Which may make your life better, but it may not. And this fifth and final question, if you have the courage to actually ask it and act on it, it positions you to make the world better. And when you follow Jesus sort of throughout his ministry, he was constantly sort of hinting at something new that was on the horizon. And, and while many people were hoping that this new thing would be political reform, Jesus had something entirely different in mind. Something much bigger than that. And, and far more inclusive than that. His hints, his parables, his foreshadowing were all designed to sort of create a sense of expectation in the minds and hearts of his followers. So when he entered Jerusalem for the final time, the crowds lined the streets to welcome him because they knew something was up. However, again, their expectations were political and national, that they didn't understand what Jesus was up to. Even his 12 disciples were, were also a little bit confused about his ultimate aim. And right to the end, those disciples were sort of jockeying for positions of power in what they hope will be the new independent nation or kingdom of Israel. And on the night of Jesus' arrest, he, he sort of gathers together his disciples for what would be their actual final time together to try to sort of, again, make his intentions clear. Now to begin, Jesus sort of offers to wash all their feet, which they see as strange, even though it shouldn't have been given all that he had taught and modeled previously. And then he predicts that one of them is going to betray him. And then he really stuns them by announcing he was leaving. Now the other things were challenging, but this one was a big problem because Jesus was sort of their security blanket because wherever Jesus went, the crowds would eventually arrive and they sort of kept Jesus' enemies from getting too close. But if Jesus leaves or sort of goes away, then the disciples might go away as well. Like, why would Jesus leave anyhow? They were getting close to the revolution and they thought the kingdom of Israel was about to be restored with King Jesus. But on this final night together, he spells it out for them with words that have become really too familiar to many of us. 
And I'm afraid many of us, maybe myself included, have become sort of complacent with these words and this command that Jesus is going to give. That these words don't sort of send us home, rushing home back to work or, or back to our neighbors with an apology. These words from the lips of Jesus, our Lord, really who's our leader, they really don't stand guard over our words like they should. That these words that Jesus shares don't always stand guard over our responses, our actions, or our attitudes like they were intended. And yet, these words represent the epicenter of our experience as Jesus followers. To use a metaphor that Jesus also used, these words are really what the kingdom of God looks like on earth. That Jesus' words in this moment represent sort of a paradigm shift. And these words were sort of the source, or are the source, of our final question. Here's what Jesus said in John chapter 13. You can follow along the Bible app. If you don't have the Bible app, head to bible.com app. Once you're in the app, head to the more menu option in the bottom right corner, select events, and you can find our church. We'll also have the notes and verses on the screen as well. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 34. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Uh, I heard this interesting sort of contrast to the idea that Jesus was giving commandments in this moment. That the disciples were probably still in the mindset that Jesus was going to become the king of Israel. And so they might have been wondering why Jesus wasn't making plans instead of giving commands. Because they already had plenty of commands this time. So to look at us in this season where we are right now, where I think all of us would like to make plans for the future, maybe we need to focus on following this command from Jesus. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Now, to be clear, Jesus wasn't commanding them to feel something. He isn't commanding you or me to feel something. He's commanding us to do something. And up next, uh, Jesus is going to sort of define what love is. And really what Jesus said next was only able to be able to be, able to be understood several days later. Because what Jesus said next has continued to change people's lives 2,000 years later. And it continues to change people's lives today. And what Jesus said next trumped the golden rule. And here's what he said. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Now this should have been disturbing for them. Because in this moment, Jesus sort of establishes himself as the standard for love. And the standard against which we're supposed to measure and evaluate all of our behavior if we're Jesus followers. And Jesus tells his followers on the night of his arrest to treat others as he has treated them. Now, how Jesus treated those around him, uh, around this table rather, uh, for them, this would have been quite personal. Because when we read this verse, we sort of think of the cross, but those around the table, they didn't think about that. They thought about the previous three years with Jesus. And Jesus could, again, gone around the table and started maybe with Matthew. Ma Matthew, do you remember what you were up to when we first met? Well, yeah, I was working for Rome basically as a government-sanctioned thief, and, and people sort of stayed away from me. Well, do you remember what I said to you when we first met, Jesus might say? And Matthew would say, yeah, like you invited me to follow you and then you had a meal, we had a meal together when no one except my tax collector friends would do that. And Jesus would say, exactly. S extend that same love to every person you meet. As I have loved you, Matthew, love others the same way. And again, Jesus could have worked his way around the table to each of the disciples in the room telling them about how he loved them. That love others the same way that I've loved you. Extend the same grace, extend the same forgiveness that I've extended to you. So how about you? <laughs> what were you up to the first time you learned about Jesus and maybe started following him? That he loves you in spite of all your baggage. He hears your prayers. He forgives you over and over, sometimes for the same dumb stuff, right? And in my case, I really have no excuse not to extend the same grace, forgiveness, and mercy 
and really the second and third chances to everyone I meet because I have been instructed to love as I have been loved by Jesus. And I've been given that same grace, forgiveness, mercy, and those second and third chances from Jesus. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other, Jesus said. Now, when Jesus said this, he could have said, like, if you think you've seen love, like, you haven't seen the full extent of the love yet. Because tomorrow, Jesus would say, I'm going to be covered in my blood, and I'll put on a demonstration of love that will take your breath away. And it also is going to take your sin away. That you won't have any excuse not to love the way I've loved you. That tomorrow I'm going to give my life away for my enemies and for you. That your love for one another will prove to the world, Jesus would say, that you are my disciples. Like, this is supposed to be the one specific identifying characteristic of Jesus' followers. The way we love. That this stood in stark contrast to the first century way of thinking. And unfortunately, it stands in stark contrast to the way of power that many in the church think of today. That this was sort of be a litmus test. Not a litmus test that was sort of about a ritual or a specific day of the week or singing a song, attending a Sunday gathering. That getting closer to God would mean, in many ways, getting closer to the people around you. And interestingly, Jesus did not use his position or authority to sort of motivate his followers to do this. Do you know what Jesus used to motivate his followers to action, to sort of live this out? Like, why would his followers obey this command? Well, Jesus would leverage his sacrificial love to motivate his followers to to sacrificially love others. Because Jesus loved them first. He went first. And his followers were to love others just that he had already loved them and was about to do again, actually. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Which brings us to our fifth and final question in this series. And this question sort of paves the way to healthy relationships. And it brings clarity to many, if not most, relational decisions that we'll bump up against. And if you are a Jesus follower, you really have to ask this question. Question number five. What does love require of me? Now, this is a clarifying question that can also be a bit terrifying. And this question should sort of stand guard over our consciences. This question should serve as a guide or as a compass as we navigate the complexities of relationships. It should inform how we date, how we parent, how we boss, how we manage, how we coach. It should inform a sort of a perimeter around what we say and what we do in our roles as spouse, coworker, neighbor, friend. That this question gives voice to God's will for us on so many issues. On issues the Bible doesn't speak to directly. This question sort of fills in the gaps. And if you're a Jesus follower, this question sort of crushes our excuses and justifications. But the Bible doesn't say something wrong, or say there's anything wrong with, fill in the blank. That when we're tempted to wonder how little we can get away with, this question sort of closes all of our loopholes, calls us to account, and exposes our hypocrisy. This question is so simple yet incredibly demanding, and it intersects with every imaginable relationship scenario. That when you're not sure what to do or say, ask the question, what does love require of me? And then love others the way that God through Jesus has loved you. Now, you might be smart enough and emotionally dialed in enough to know what love requires of you most of the time. But just in case love one another is not specific enough, much of the New Testament is actually full of real-world applications of what this type of love looked like. That the authors of the New Testament sort of tried to explain how to apply this one command from Jesus. Uh, One summary from Paul basically says, when it comes to relationships, the Spirit of God will always nudge you in the direction of love. And Paul would also write a detailed description, a description rather, of what real-world love acts like. And in his first letter to the Jesus followers in Corinth, um, he would write about this. And you're probably familiar with this, as it's frequently quoted 
in wedding ceremonies. But this description of love is not just meant for married couples. This is the standard of love for any relationship. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. That love never treats another person dishonestly, disgracefully, or indecently. Love never treats another person dishonorably, disgracefully, or indecently because Jesus never treated another person, including you. He never treated another person with dishonor. Continues on. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. That love never sneaks something in harmful into the relationship. Just the opposite. Love protects the relationship by keeping harmful things out. That love chooses to trust. That isn't this what you hope from for your friends, your family, your neighbors, and the people you work with? That if these behaviors and responses that we sort of consciously or subconsciously expect from others, shouldn't we be required, uh, shouldn't they be required of us as well? What does love require of me? And one of the obstacles to this question is sometimes that we push back on the significance of this question. We sort of think like, there's got to be more than just this. And I think we wonder about more because as modern people, we've never witnessed a crucifixion. We've never seen someone choose days ahead of time to lay down their life for an enemy. We think there's more because we haven't seen the extent or the extreme to which this love can change the world. That there's nothing deeper or more profound, and there's nothing with more potential to change everything than this love that Jesus commanded and exemplified. That this love would sort of turn the world upside down because Jesus would establish a kingdom that looked upside down to the world. And this love seemed like a small threat to the empire and to the temple but eventually would engulf the empire and replace the temple. And on the flip side, if it sounds like too much to ask, then congratulations. You probably understand the magnitude of what Jesus was asking of us. That if this sounds like something that you can't live up to, then you probably understand what he's calling you to do. But also, with God's help, you can love others like this. What does love require of me? That this question may require you to sort of get out of your chair and walk into the kitchen or the bedroom and apologize to someone. This question may require you to pick up your phone and rebuild a bridge that you burned down with your logic and sarcasm. You might have been right, but being right wasn't what love required. That you may need to write a letter or an email to someone who may not be interested in what love requires of them. That I hope this question compels you to forgive, be kind, loan your strength to someone else, tame your tongue, adjust your pace to someone else's pace, open your wallet, reshuffle your values, own your slice of the conflict pie. Because while there are so many complicated things in this life and so many things that I'll never understand, when it comes to this question, I almost always know what love requires of me. So I wanna close with a prayer that I shared last year, but at least for me, it has a different significance this year and specific application with this message today. I found this prayer while listening to a podcast called The Space Between Us with the author of a book by that same title. But the subtitle was, How Jesus Teaches Us to Live Together When Politics and Religion Pull Us Apart. Now, I might adjust that subtitle to, when everything in the world, like COVID, masks, vaccines, and more, pull us apart. And the author, Sarah Anderson, wrote this beautiful prayer that we're going to close with the message today. And this prayer might be something that you need to pray this week as you're sort of scrolling through your phone. 
as the holiday gatherings get closer, as you head to work or school this week. And if you want a copy of this prayer, head to the link on the screen. Now, I'm going to read most of the prayer, but I would love for you to repeat with me the parts, Lord, we give thanks when those come up. For family near and peaceable, Lord, we give thanks. For family far and conflicted, Lord, we give thanks. For the ones easy to love, Lord, we give thanks. For the ones we fight to love, Lord, we give thanks. For people who see as we see, Lord, we give thanks. For the people we don't understand, Lord, we give thanks. For people who don't understand us, Lord, we give thanks. For easy conversation and expressed affection, Lord, we give thanks. For gentle discord within our discourse, Lord, we give thanks. For unity, not sameness, Lord, we give thanks. For charity in all things, Lord, we give thanks. For a world that reflects your goodness, Lord, we give thanks. For a humankind that bears your image, Lord, we give thanks. For a day we'll delight in our differences and not just tolerate them. For a gathering of every tribe and every language. For a table and a feast today, anticipating the one we'll enjoy with you someday. Lord, we give thanks. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these powerful, powerful words from Jesus. Uh, we pray that these words would become the standard for which we determine our behavior and our words. God, for the person right now who, who knows in their heart that they need to go and apologize to somebody, and that's what love requires of them, would you give them the courage to go and do that right now? For the person who is, is fighting with what they should do and knowing what love requires of them, God, would you give them the wisdom to know what to do but God, would you also give them the courage to go and do it? Would you help them to see how this could help someone else? And maybe how it could also help them to move past the situation, to find healing, to find hope that God, somehow you might use this situation to help them and the other person as well. God, thank you for loving us first. Thank you for exemplifying this to us. Would you help us to exemplify it to others as well? Would you help us to love others as you have loved us? Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.